substitution contact to the desk. One, two, three, four, five. I'm Chandler for BITV, and this is Shipwrecked Records, where each month we sit down with luminaries from across the dance music spectrum to find out which eight records they would save from a sinking ship. This month, I'm joined by Carl O'Connor, better known as Regis. With a career spanning roughly 25 years, Regis is one of techno's most revered, and in some respects, controversial figures. Many know him as one half of Downwards, the groundbreaking techno imprint he founded in 1993 with Peter Sutton, aka Female. For others, his story began with Sandwell District the now-defunct label and collective he and Sutton launched in the 2000s with Juan Mendez, a.k.a. Silent Servant, and David Sumner, better known as Function. Though it was O'Connor and Sumner who first became the de facto face of Sandwell District through their bombastic live sets together. And as their legend grew, so did the pair's reputation as hedonistic rock and rollers. Backstage fights led to at least one broken shoulder, and for a time... Airlines wouldn't even seat them together, fearful of what might happen after takeoff. Eventually, the chaos became too much, and the pair had an acrimonious falling out in mid-2013. But O'Connor's chaotic approach is exactly what's always made his music so good. He once remarked that he still doesn't know how most of his studio gear works, and that he finds perfection boring. Instead, he embraces the mistakes he makes in his productions, lending his extensive back catalogue a raw and wholly authentic feel. Loopy, yet intense. Minimal, yet grandiose. Percussive and furious. It's immediacy that O'Connor craves, the here and now, preferring interference and disruption as his means for remaining exalted above the status quo. All right, I'm here with Carl O'Connor, Regis at SWG3. Hey, Carl, how are you doing? I'm very well, thank you. Uh, you just up, finished up with uh, Soma School. You were on a panel with uh, Surgeon and uh, Slam and a few others. How'd that go? Yeah, it was interesting. It's almost very alien to me talking about music. It's it's almost like post-football match commentary, really. It kind of, kind of makes no sense talking about stuff that's instinctive, but it was fun. It actually, you could see me warming up and you couldn't stop me in the end. It was, uh, yeah, it was kind of funny. Um, so I'd like to start with a, uh, a quote. Um, you once said, the problem with electronic music is that the stars are gone. Maybe people don't want stars, but I certainly do. I love it. I want to see personalities. And now there very rarely, rarely are any. Do you still believe that? It, well, it's not a belief, it's, com- it's complete fact. But yeah, that's... <laughs> well, stars in, tra- you know, stars in a traditional sense that um, maybe that I grew up with and, the, the, um, and how I understand star quality and, what, and what, what, what I expect from stars, you know. And you can find that in the most, you know, any place. I'm sure I was, I was, I was being a bit pedantic, I think, with that but, um, and playful, but uh, it was... Uh, yeah, I think it's true. I think it's true. But that's the thing about dance music. Dance music was when the backroom boys came to the forefront. That was the whole point. It was about the re uh, the realigning and the re of the DNA of rock and roll. It was when the, the you know you didn't need the, the lead singer, the front. You didn't need the you know you didn't need the band. You just the technician was the star. The DJ became the star, and uh, and that was all. I think I was just being playful when I said that. But I think I, I mean I, I truly believe it. You also said that uh, with rock and roll, there was a fantastic person you wanted to be with the front man. 
Have you tried to be the rock and roll front man with your career? I am the front man. <laughs> I am the, you know, I'm the greatest 1960s rock, rock star in the world. Has that um, ever led to trouble? Um, I think, yeah, absolutely. I think, you know, in, in, in lots of, especially early on, maybe people didn't get that. People thought that was very unprofessional. People thought that was being disruptive. But as, well, as I said earlier in the panel, that was the whole nature of rock and roll. It's about disruption. You know, it isn't about being necessarily professional. It isn't about adhering to the rules. It isn't about... It's about being respectful. But once you're on stage and you let, you know, you let your muse inhabit you and you become a different person, that's, you know, that, that's... It's your territory as an artist, you know, and that's to, to the best of my degree. I can rein that in. It's about it's about honing that down and making that really work for a dance audience. It's not as it's not as reckless, maybe now as it, as it was. It's a bit more controlled, but that's only through experience. Okay, so why don't you uh, tell us about your first track? Yeah, so I think the, the whole nature of your show is to pick um, eight tracks, your favourite tracks. But what I did instead, I I picked eight tracks that were very symbolic in the way that. For me personally, that would that, that were part of my growing up with music, in particular, in the way that I uh, I was first exposed to music, and pretty much in my house, um, certainly in my family, the, the the person I went to for music was my my uncle because he he was actually in a band and he led this very unorthodox life that I thought at that stage that compared to my my dad who went out and did a normal job, my you know he was in a band and I thought it was amazing, you know he didn't. He was still in bed Sunday morning or Sunday afternoon because he'd been out the night before and he used to come down and terrorise us because he was just with a you know, kind of drink in his hand. And I thought, this is amazing. This is, this is exactly the type of thing. But he, what he used to do, he used to sort of... He did actually care, and he cared very much about music. Um, it was very much American music. You know, it, it was definitely Presley. It was definitely... It was Roy Orbison, Eddie Cochran, and most... Yeah, and, de and definitely the... the the artist who I always have a massive soft spot for was Gene Vincent, and uh, he sat me down one night, maybe early 70s, maybe one of my earliest memories, like maybe mid-70s, and we watched something called The Rock and Roll Sing, which is an amazing documentary about Gene Vincent, and it was, it's an eye-opener now, even for people who want to get into music. And it stayed with me forever, this documentary, and um, this is uh, the, the 1969 version of Bebopalula, which is from that documentary. Just 
let's go back to your youth. You were speaking a little bit about um, your uncle and uh, some of your those early influences. Most of your, or if not all of your early influences, were rock and roll stars, right? Well, I think I think it's just because I was growing up in the seventies, and that, that that was that's what it, it was. I mean, my uncle was from that generation that they, you know, who who really was. The first generation, really, who who had the first wave of rock and roll, really. He was a, he was a kid, and it was American, and that was what it was. I think you know, he, he, the Beatles never really. They always seemed very sort of one D compared to a lot of those stars for him, anyway. You know, and you know, the Stones were passable, but yeah, that, it was pretty much rock and roll, and it just seemed this this amazing. It, it was just unspoken, really. That's the way that it was. Presley was, you know, that, it, it was Presley's act, and. Uh, we were all following it, and that was the way it was. And I think it's yeah, that, and, that, and that was I found that quite exciting because it, the, mun, the mundane life, especially being in England at that particular time, it was really. I mean, even though I was a child and I was you know blissfully happy, I didn't really you know looking back, it was you know it was relatively that was the only really way you could the way out of the doldrums, you know, the gloom, you know. So um, yeah, that was it. And just for our listeners, we are live at SWG3. Downstairs, Maximum Pressure has just begun, so you are hearing the uh, start of that show in the background. We apologize for that. Um, Carl, uh, you also started a band, I believe, when you were fairly young. Uh, Carl and the Curb Crawlers, right? Well, well, I think kids are always in bands and stuff, and you have... (laughs) Well, that was one of them. The other one was a band called Family Sex. And um, I I think... I definitely knew what I wanted to do straight away, and there was no, there was no there was no doubt whatsoever that I wanted to be involved with music in some sort of way. I think maybe when I was about maybe nine or ten, I still wanted to, I was really into football. But I think when I became more aware of music personally and how it could create a language for myself and how I could speak to my my friends once we were into the same type of music and we could create our own language and make associations through music, I fell away from football, and then I really just. I just threw myself into music because there was literally wasn't anything else and I'm not even making that up there was nothing else there was, there was you know three channels at that stage on TV and most of them didn't start till you know four o'clock in the afternoon so that was to have this gateway into another world of I mean, that, that was just amazing and when and how did you make the jump to DJing? Um, well it yeah I mean it was uh, it, I was always, like I said, I always wanted to find a, a way, because I was very interested in electronic music. Electronic music then means something completely different to what electronic music means now. When people say electronic music now, people mean dance music. Electronic music then was completely something different. So what I was just trying to do is trying to find a vehicle where I could make instrumental electronic music. Because I'd almost at that point given up on vocals because it had gone out of vogue by the end of the 80s, really. And it was just, as the dance era or rave era was was being ushered in it was and I was just like looking for a vehicle and I just uh, had all in, my influences in place I knew what how I wanted it to sound but nothing was fitting quite right at that particular moment especially the early 90s it was um it was still very much of the first wave of Detroit maybe you know which was very melodic almost very soulful which was almost at odds with completely odds polar opposite of what I wanted to do I wanted to make soul music but I wanted to make different real soul music you know dark, and um so that, that's when the shift happened i almost felt i did fall into it by accident you know i didn't so i didn't all of a sudden say oh god i want to be into you know into, want to get into dance music I, I thought it was cheesy at the beginning you know i thought it was it was music that and i said this loads of times anyway before but it's only because i worked 
I worked as a, in the coat check in a nightclub in the middle of, in the mid in the mid um, 80s in Birmingham, and uh, that's when house music was starting. And I just associate that with um, a certain type of people. And it wasn't alternative. You redefined yourself by the music you listened to and the clothes you wore back then. You don't. You, we haven't really done that since the mid 90s, really. I mean, time is now. You know, time, the perception of time and things have changed so much slower now because um, it's just the way that it is, you know, musically. So, um, so I kind of did, yeah, by mistake. That's how it happened. It just happened really by mistake. And I've just used it as a vehicle ever since for my ideas. Why don't you tell us about uh, your next track? So, I think pretty much in the in the mid 70s i think it was around 1975 i was i i was becoming more aware of music but as a child and i, I was the, the the wider impact that music could actually have really and i think this band in particular i always remember especially when i was getting my hair cut in birmingham over at my my nan's house and i used to be you know i used to remember it always on the radio and it was always a specific type of beat in the mid 70s and that beat is the glitter beat and the glitter beat, it's, it was so hypnotic and it was so amazing. And, and it's, you know, and the band I'm, you know, chose now was part of the, the unholy trilogy of the Osmonds, the Bay City Rollers, and of course, Gary Glitter. Now, we all know what happened to Gary Glitter, but the, the unfortunate thing is his backing band was so, the Glitter Band, it was an amazing band in their own right. And uh, I always remember quite vividly there was, um, there was a big place called Bingley Hall in Birmingham, a huge, a huge warehouse of a place. And they used to have things like the Ideal, Ideal Home Exhibition. And I always remember there, there was um, maybe sort of 77, maybe 77 actually, and there was on, on, they had it on stage and they had these uh, characters from the Wombles on there, these pe- people in life-size costumes. And they had this track going to the glitter beat and it was actually this, it, it was pounding and it kept going on and on. And the, and the Wombles were dancing and their eyes were popping around. Their costumes were almost falling off and it was the most hypnotic thing I'd ever seen in my life and it was and it didn't finish and it kept going on and on and Tomsk my favorite one his head was starting to come off but his eyes were wobbling around in these awful costumes but it, the music didn't stop and it was it was spellbinding and it, I always remember it and then it finished dead and then there was just the most polite ripple of applause and everything I thought yeah this is absolutely amazing this is exactly it was my, I think it was really my first rock concert, and I thought, yeah, this is just so amazing. And the glitter beat, for that reason, has always stu- stood with me, and as a result, this is my favourite track. And I, yeah, the glitter band just for you.
The first Downwards record came in 1993. Uh, it was Antonym, uh, Shattering of an Illusion. It's a slow, abstract, fairly bizarre record. How did you sign that, and how was that received? Um, uh, so, yeah, I mean, we, we didn't <laughs> we didn't sign it. I mean, this is the, this is the thing. I mean, we almost if you had a fax machine you were a record label and that, you know it was obviously pre-internet and when I say pre-internet to some people they sort of you can see some some younger people so they, they, they politely smile at you and then edge backwards what do you mean pre-internet and so anyway it, it was some the guy answered him he was um, an experimental producer from Nuneaton I used to work in a record shop yeah I think he used to come in and try and sell me record, reggae records actually for some reason I don't, I, I've never quite worked out why he was selling me German reggae Anyway, he was. Then he said, do you want to listen to my, my own music? And I listened to it. And it just seemed, everything that I loved previously about music, it was experimental, but it just seemed, oh my God, this guy's coming in now and he's, he does things with tapes. And it's, uh, it was so exotic to me in that time in Birmingham. And uh, we just became friends. And I said, let's do something together. And uh, we, we did that record, you know, and that was a long time ago. I can remember the day it came, I can remember the day the test present came through and I thought this is magic and I put the needle on the record and I thought oh my god this is the first time magic's happened because we, we from what we recorded and we recorded in a proper studio amazingly much to the uh, bemusement of the, of the studio engineer but we, we did it and it was just magic and I, I remember it very fondly well it's pivotal yeah I believe you said you were on the dole then what was that time like for you? Um, well the, the weird thing is I mean I always had I mean, I always had jobs and stuff like that. I mean, this is the whole thing about the, you know, if you went to school, late 70s, early 80s in England, it was all doom and gloom. People saying, oh my God, you know, there's no future, that, you know, you, you'll never, one in 10, you'll never get a job. Actually, when I left school, I, went, I walked straight into a job. And I thought, God, you know what? People are a load of bullshitters. What a bunch of, it's just, and it, it's true, true then as it is today. You know what? It's just about a bunch of idiots sounding off on a load of nonsense and terrorising each other about you know, complete garbage. So I think at that point, really, I just became, you know, I, was, I became a... I, I, I definitely changed. And I just, the way that I viewed the world was completely different. And I think I got to get a job anyway. I, I did various jobs. And then I think at that particular time, I was on the door. And that's why we all took our names, different names. We didn't use us. We didn't use. I didn't use my real name. I, I, I found actually my friend said, "Oh, you should call yourself Regis after Sil Regis." Well, that's a good idea because it's only going to last a couple of months. It doesn't make any difference. And um, yeah, it was just it was just so we could DJ and not let the <laughs> not let the DSS know about it, you know. And it was really it was really that was all it was to do with really. But. Um, but I think that was quite. That wasn't. Un, yeah, that wasn't unusual at that particular time, really. You know, you know. But yeah, I mean, it's obviously that's it. Really, couldn't. Yeah, things changed. <laughs> Did that shape the label in any specific way, or shape your music in any specific way? Um, well, I, I definitely remember that time we used to get was actually with the Surgeon record when the first Surgeon record came out because the first the first two records, the Mark F record and the Anson record. The Antonym record, they really didn't do, they were quite experimental records and they didn't do really well at all, obviously. And um, then we tried, to, then we did another one. We did a record, it was like an acid record, um, I think we called, yeah, we called Hygiene. They did a lot better I and mean, we just noticed, oh, this is really good, this is like dance music, this is what's happening. And then um, at that stage as well, I did our first 
we did a record by an, you know, a short-lived daily, it's called Hostage, but it was all lost in sort of distribution nonsense, distribution at closed down, so we lost the whole pressing on that. So basically, I was really, it was really the last chance saloon with the Surgeon record. And I used to get about 70 quid a week or whatever for, um, or two for two weeks for the doll. And I had this idea, we need to do postcards. Let's do postcards with the Surgeon record. And it was, I was literally about 65 quid the postcards cost and I had 70 quid for the two weeks and I was thought uh, that was the only time I thought you know what this has really got to work if it's not now maybe I, I have to rethink this and it did I mean the first record you know surgeon record happened and then you know and and that was it that we were off on our little journey our big journey that's never ending hasn't ended yeah why don't you tell us about the third third track well obviously I was I was far too far too young to be there in any way whatsoever for punk and I was, I was really too young really to even be influenced in any way by punk I was I was always influenced by people who were influenced by punk but what I do remember you're always influenced by older people and uh, I was lucky enough to have a family friend who was a bit older than us uh, he wasn't necessarily into punk music but he was he, li he liked things like Ian Jury and he liked the police and stuff like that we used to go around his house and there was this, this will be the late, late 70s, like 79, and I just uh, always used to go back to a compilation by, from the film, the Derek Jarman film, Jubilee. Now, I'd never seen the film, but we used to listen to the soundtrack quite a lot, and there's, a couple of, there's, there's so many amazing tracks on that record, but the one in particular that I did love, in particular, was the Adam and the Ants track, the original Deutsche Girls, and then it was, because time went so quickly then as well, it was almost seen that was... Before me, you know, I was listening to that forever, and then all of a sudden, Adam and the Ants became what he became. He became this worldwide phenomena, for musical phenomena, sort of globally. And um, I always found it, you know, and, and that was kind of my way that into sort of maybe, maybe punk music. But what you know, as most people who saw Adam and the Ants, that's that stage will contest. I mean, they probably were one of the greatest punk bands ever, but obviously everything that happened after that, all the pop stuff maybe taint, might taint that a little. But this track is definitely my doorway into me being really awakening of something other than there might, there might be something radical, other than pop, pop music. There might be something really happening that's, you know, very, very, very violent, you know, ambiguous, sexual. And that was everything, you know, that's all you can ever want, really, with music. Well, especially in pop stars. And he looked great. And, and, that, and that was it. It was a great... And uh, for that reason, it was always another pivotal record for me. We'll do the tango. We'll try the foxtrot. I'll eat a mango. You drink a straight scotch. You know I told you, you could be classy. So why did you have to be so nasty? Blonde 
Authenticity is uh, quite important to you, isn't it? I think it should be important to everybody. Yeah, I mean, it, it, it's, it's massively important to me. It's hugely important. Yeah. From the music I've listened to, um, because at the steps definitely at the start of the early '80s, it was, it was a completely different landscape musically. We we're so fortunate. I'm very fortunate to be in that generation, getting into really getting into music at that stage because everything was British. There was no question to listen to American music. American music was old-fashioned. You wouldn't listen, you know, why the hell would you listen to Hall of, Hall of Notes when you can listen to the specials? And also the revolution, especially in electronic music, had started then to come from the clubs into the charts. And a lot of things that were considered very underground club music at that stage were getting into the charts. And then, then it was this generation I was talking about, the generation who were influenced by punk were starting bands. And... You know, the utilitarian way of, the, especially the, the economy of electronic music at that stage, everyone was, um, you know, cheap synthesizers, and that was the tool of choice. You know, and then it was, it was so exciting getting into electro, listening to electronic music at that stage because it was completely alien. I mean, if you can imagine, you'd never heard electronic music in a pop context before. It was absolute, it was, it, it was night and day. Guitar music was all... Or, or, you know, already it became redundant overnight. It was old-fashioned. It was something your parents listened to. It was over. And what you wanted, it just looked great. And a lot of the bands of so many... A lot of the bands were European, and British in particular. And it was a second British invasion, really. And uh, and, that's, and, and, that's, and that's where... Um, yeah, and that, and that was a really... Another amazing time for me. But it, just to be... Just in the right time, the right, the right age, to really hit that. And that was my, you know... My awareness became... Completely, then. I mean, you know, everything became defined. I couldn't. All of a sudden, I come back from one holiday, and you know, certain people I used to speak to before that holiday, I couldn't speak to them again because they, you know, my my friendships were based upon music, and it was that. You know, I could only speak to people who liked the same music as me, and it was it was that hardcore back then. You know, and you couldn't like different types of music because that was impossible. You'd be a poser, and um, yeah, and, and that was it. Was really my sanctuary. It was my refuge. Like, you know, I know people sort of take away, talk about music being, you know, so important to them. But at that particular time, it, yeah, it proved to be my refuge. It, it was where I got all my art from. It's where I got my understanding. It's where I, got, it's where I, I learned more from music than I ever learned from school. Has it been difficult to remain authentic in an industry like this? Um, I, th I think, as, I think, as, think as, as time does go on, I think the only, the only thing that's... On my side, I'd say Tony's side, surgeon's side as well, is we get, the longer it goes on, the more confused we become. We were very definite. I was de very, you know, I came to this fully formed in, you know, 1993. I knew exactly what I wanted to do. I knew exactly how I wanted to say it. And a lot, even though a lot of those themes are very still very similar with me, I'm, I'm still 
I'm open to a lot more things that maybe I wouldn't have been open to before, but I can only, but I bring them into my own realm. So I think that, yeah, it's, it's authenticity. Of course it is, because it's, it's me, you know. Um, tell us about your, your next track. Well, the next track, in fact, is the most, well, the band are the, probably the most pivotal for me. I think, yet again, it's one of those things where you sort of mention the name and then people associate it with a particular song. And very much globally, it's a one-hit wonder. But in England, there was an absolute, an amazing three-year period that Soft Cell completely inhabited my life like no other band or no other band has ever since. I mean, I can, I remember the day I watched them on on uh, on top of the pops, and I was sitting down there with my my grandfather actually, and uh, you know he was he was an amazing guy, and he you know he put he he put you know he'd, he'd been there in the sort of sixties and seventies with my my mom and my my my, my uncles watching all you know he'd watch Bowie and he just you know just maybe a bit of a grunt, but when Soft Cell came on, I remember it distinctly. He got up from he got up from his chair and he went fuck this. And he walked out, and I'd never heard him swear ever in his life. He was a pure gentleman. He went, he was shocked to his core. And I, that's, I thought, yeah, man, this is exactly what I want. And then for then, it was, and it was absolutely amazing. And then through, through them, I, they opened up a completely different world. Without them, I wouldn't have heard of Throb and Gristle. I wouldn't have heard of Einstutz and Neubauden, Cabaret Voltaire, The Birthday Party. The list is endless. Suicide, the list is endless. And what happened about independent, what was great about Soft Cell in particular, they were on a label called Sun Bazaar, which was an amazing label. They had Cabaret Voltaire, Test Department, bands like that. And through them, you could join the dots to other bands, you know, by, you know, other great pop bands like Depeche Mode. And then you'd be into a completely new realm of everything. And it was, it was like a one-stop shop. Everything was great on those labels. So it was, a, it was very, yeah, it was amazing. And uh, so it was, it was, it was for, for me personally, it was, a, it was a great, great time. And this track in particular, um, yeah, the, the, the single I was good to, obviously Soft Cell are mainly known for their one, you know, their, their, their track Tainted Love. But um, my aunt actually went into the Virgin, not the Virgin Megastore, but the original Virgin Independent Store in Birmingham. And because I asked her to, could you buy me the single? And she came back with the album, uh, the, the album being the Sun Bizarre album, which is a compilation that Steve-O, the soft sales manager did and it had all these great electronic oddities on it Depeche Mode included and tainted and the album was give, being given away free with the single it was shrink wrapped so and then it, yeah my life was never the same again you can laugh point at me they do it all the time but how would you like it if you Point to me. 
with the patent leather face Tears pictures out of magazines Looks longingly at makeup ads And glossy spreads of beauty queens The girl with the patent leather face Sits in a dark and cutting room She changed her door squats on the floor Let's know one into I know you're quite fond of uh, films like Spinal Tap, uh, comedy like Monty Python, subversive humor, self-referential, satirical. Where do you think that came from? You know, you know what? I think it's I, I, it's so weird. I mean, you, you, I, th I think it's it's definitely a, a sense of humor that you have to share with friends again, and it it, it, it just seems so sophisticated. And I love I mean, those films. Oh my god! I, you know, well, Python in particular was like it was. It was a go-to back then, and because it, it, it just made me. When I was sad, it made me feel happy. And I know, funny enough, George Harrison said that about how important Python was after the Beatles broke up for him, because he could just get lost in a different world. And I, and I, they, they created their own world as much as Milligan and uh, all these people. So important to me. And the humor was, you know, it's it, it was rock and roll. It, they were a punk comedy was rock and roll with them, you know. And uh, yeah, but I love them. Still do, actually. Yeah, still do. How much does your sense of humor inform your music? I, th I think it's up hugely, hugely. I think that there's always that, that there's always a danger though that you don't want to be, you know, too take it too far, you know, become you know become the butt of. I think I think it's a, it's a fine balance of being absurdist and really putting a humorous edge to stuff than being comical. You know, there's the fine. Hopefully, hopefully we tread it. I mean, I, th I think I think we do. Um, we, you know, it's that thing, oh, you don't take yourself too seriously. Well, you know, we take what we do very, very seriously, but the, the, everything that goes into it and the whole... It, it's essential, especially for British Murder Boys, which is a, you know, it's a comedic name in itself. So it was... Um, yeah, I mean, it, it's, it's hugely important. And, it, you know, it's like one of, one of many things that, inf you know, inf we, we, that impacts our music and we put in there. Do you think there could ever be a Spinal Tap for dance music? 
I'll tell you what, if there, are, if there is, I'm auditioning. <laughs> I've got the part. I've got the part, definitely. Um, tell us about your next track. Yeah, the next track is almost, I, I, I have this with certain tracks and you know, I've, I've spoke to people who live through a lot of the generations and stuff. And there's certain tracks that really do, really evoke and take you back to that generation, to, to, to take you back to a specific point, point in time. Whether it be Telstar by the Tornadoes, the Joe Meek produced record, which is like, whenever I hear that, I'm, I'm just taken back I'm taking back to the 60s, even though I was never there. And it was just like, it's so, it just, I get it all. Maybe the 70s would be, some, you know, maybe a Bowl and T-Rex track would really take you back. You'd listen to it. It would be so of its time. And my next track, especially in the early 80s, there was so much, so many bands were full of amazingly fanboying singers who were all informed by punk. All these people who, who maybe who got up and did it and informed by punk, but then they were really remoulding it, remoulding and shaping their own ideas. And there's so much amazing music, so amazing, so many amazing front, front men, whether it be Julian Cope from um, Teardrop Explodes, uh, you know, obviously aforementioned Mark Almond from Soft Cell, you know, Dave Gahan from Depeche Mode. But the band who really, I'm not too sure if they really got much global success or if they got anything out of, much out of the UK, but whenever I listen to this particular track, I'm completely taken back to that particular that moment. And there's no track for me that really can. I, I remember well listening. You know, we used to bring our transistor radios into school, and on, the charts were given out on a Tuesday, and we used to sit out on the school playing field, listening to our transistor radios, listening to the charts at dinner time because they were given at dinner time back then. And uh, yeah, and th this track will forever be there with the amazing the amazing associates with you know Billy McKenzie one of the greatest front men weirdest front men amazing front men the late Billy McKenzie yeah, and this track the associates party fears to will always be there
Downwards is 25 years old this year. How does that feel? I, I mean, I, I think I always kind of hated anniversaries. I hated sort of like marking anything like that because it, it just seems it does seem very record industry. We haven't really done that. We haven't taken advantage of it. But it really doesn't seem like any time's passed whatsoever since the tracks I mentioned before. Since the Anthem record came in, it's really, really kind of weird. I've got no really real concept of time. I don't think anymore. Um, I think Tony, Tony, Tony's got Tony Surgeon's got this really great, great thing that he says, which is very, very true. I mean, we almost live in a box. We don't. The, the, most people, normal people, have a have a timeline. You can plot your life with a timeline. Our lives are much in a box. You shake it up, and it, there's no real timeline. You know, so you get what could have happened 15 years ago might be as clear as what happened yesterday. And I think that's very true when you're an artist and left left to your own devices, when you haven't got a boss. You know, when you have to live on being an artist as well, which is, um, you know, all, the, all these things, you know, you're, you're constantly, not wheeling and dealing, but you're constantly thinking. And I think that's really important. And so, yeah, but how does it feel? It feels, yeah, it, feel, it feels good to be still here. You know, I feel kind of very proud of everybody that I've been associated with. <laughs> I think it's been a rather chaotic uh, few decades. I read you fallen out with many of the artists. And I also read that somebody tried to assassinate you by tampering with your car. Is that is there any truth to that? Um, partial, partial truth. But I, I, I mean, I've, I've everybody I've fallen out with, I've made up with. So you know, I'm glad. I mean, they're all just amazing characters. I mean, this, I've been you know, very, very fortunate. So many amazing characters that have come through and helped. I mean, I have to sort of say at this stage as well, I mean, if, if there was the most influential character in the starting of Downers Records, it was, it was Mick Harris, the former drummer of Napalm Death in Scorn. Uh, without Mick, there's, there would have absolutely be no, there'd be nobody. You know, we wouldn't be doing what we're doing because he really galvanised us. He put us together. He, 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 he gave us the inspiration. You know, he, he, gave, me, he, he gave me confidence because I think before that, before I knew him, I, did, I really didn't have any confidence, which is ironic because Mick's often said he lacks confidence, but he was just such a, an amazing person. Altruistic, he, he just gave so much, and he gives so much, and he's such a you know big-hearted person. And uh, yeah, I owe him so much, really, and he's, he's so much part of what everything that especially me and me and Tony would admit that as well, you know. But yeah, I mean, it, everybody. I mean, it, it's, it's all it's dramatic, you know, when you when you're all kids together and you start. We were just kids when we started, and you know, think, you know, and you all of a sudden, you, you know, you're asked to fly all around the world. It was a pretty big deal, really, because it was kind of, yeah, this is, this is really happening and we're doing it. And then, of course, you take advantage. I mean, it was great. Oh, my God, people are getting, you know, they're paying for our drinks. We couldn't believe it. Oh, my God, they're paying for food as well. This is amazing. We're, you know, we're living, we're living the dream. We're living, you know, we're, you know we're the star of our own B-movie. So, it's, um, yeah, it was, uh, yeah, it's been turbulent, uh, you know, 
<laughs> but you know, I think I think I think it's 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 centralized. It's all come back to a sense now, so I think it's all pretty good. Is chaos a creative force for you? Chaos or conflict? It, it, it's it's not something I. It, it's not something that I seek. It's not something I can cultivate. It, it's unfortunately something that's it's inherent in what I what I am. I mean, I wish I could. I wish I was well ordered. I wish I could put things into. I mean, I'm, I'm pretty disciplined, but um, in things when it comes, to, it's simple things like archiving music. I just never do that. I can, you know, if I could be working on a track last week and I can't find it again in a folder because my, my whole computer's chaos, you know, and I don't know where it is, and I don't know if I do this to trip myself up or if this is just because I'm being bone idle or I don't know. But it, it's it just seems to be part and parcel of what's followed me all my life, you know. And I don't know if that's just I, it must be inbuilt. It seems like uh, Tony Surgeon would be the outlier to, to a lot of this. He's been there since the beginning. You guys are, you know, still working together closely, touring together. Um, is, that, is that him? Is he a stabilizing force? You know, he, he is, and I have to give so much credit to Tony, especially maybe in the last 10 years or so. Tony really is one of these people... He turned a lot, of, a lot of things in his life around in an amazing way because it's very difficult to turn certain things about yourself around. I think Tony really examined himself in the way that he was going. No, I mean, no, 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 you know, nothing. I think it's just personal thing. I mean, nothing, nothing remotely rock and roll. But he really then searched his soul, and I think there was a lot to do with his beliefs and yoga and the way that he does that. That became, and he really changed, you know, and he not, not changed radically. I mean, he's still Tony, but it was, it became this amazing steadying force, you know. And it was, um, it was, yeah, it was, you know, it's a, it's, a re, it's really important. I can't, you know, yet again, I can't overemphasize how important Tony's contribution is certain to my life I mean you know when I think about it you think oh gosh you know Tony we we do music together but you know if you, I haven't really known that many for something that's going on for 25 years I mean we must be doing you know and it's just uh, and that does grow I mean funnily enough it grows and I get you know obviously massive admiration for Tony anyway as an artist but you know it's especially the way that he turns especially through his yoga and everything like that he, it's just this amazing force that he gives out now and it's, it's really addictive you know, and I will, you know, and that's, and that's great. Um, tell us about your next track. Well, I'm Irish, obviously. Well, not obviously. I, well, I'm Irish. But I was, I brought, I was brought up in Birmingham. Uh, I've always lived all my life. Well, I lived all my life, my young life in Birmingham. And obviously being Irish in Birmingham, especially in the 70s, what, what happened with... Um, certain things, the IRA in particular, but bombing Birmingham. It wasn't, I didn't really realise at the time, but I think it was, I think it's unpopular to be Irish anywhere sometimes. I mean, I'll go, you know, I know you, you're going to cop a lot of flack at school, especially from teachers. England was a brutal place to be. School then, you know, you used to get regularly beaten, you used to, for absolutely nothing. It was awful. I mean, I explained this to, explain this to people and they think Jesus did you live in the Victorian ages? It was, it was horrible. And I didn't really, didn't really re realise the prejudice Against me personally at school, because you know you just go, you go you go with it about you know especially with teachers you're thinking what whatever and they used to give but um, it's only recently I think you know I think at that particular time but I, what I was aware of more importantly was I didn't really have any I didn't have I'd have loved anything from Ireland because that's where I come from I'd have loved a real connection with something musically especially art a radical art band that I could be really proud of. Um, God, did it come with my next band? You know, I when when the Virgin Prunes, when I was 
when I got exposed to Virgin Prince, because funny enough, I mean, like I said, the connection before, Dave Ball from Soft Cell produced one of the Virgin Prince albums, and uh, I bought that. I'd heard actually get the, the lead singer Gavin Friday had sang on Dave Ball's solo album, so I, I was really, I, I was aware from a very young age, you know, because he had this amazing name, Gavin Friday, this is amazing. So, um, and then, yeah, I mean, the Virgin Prunes, it's, it's very difficult to explain them. They're not, it's not just a band, it's just, I, I suppose you call it mixed media these days, but it was very theatrical, overly theatrical absurdist in the most bizarre way possible but they were from Dublin and they inhabited they made up their own world and it was amazing and they they based it all around themselves on you know on and uh yeah it was just shocking performance you know live you know to see that a lot of the videos now are just amazing shocking and their music equally so and uh and at last I really can't kind of fit you know I owe them a lot really because I it really it restored my faith in where I come from and who I am in a, in a way, I know that sounds ridiculous, really. How can a band do that? But I can, the, the Virgin Prunes really, really did make me think, you know what? This is, this, it's okay to be this. And I'm great. I'm so I'm glad to be Irish. And I'm, I'm really happy. And this is what a band, you know, top trump.
You've spoken、um, a couple times about bands that、uh, build their own worlds. Is that something that you've sort of consciously or maybe unconsciously tried to do with with downwards and your music? I, I think, yeah, I think it was. Con- I think it's the way that I've always done stuff. You know, I think if I always felt if I wasn't good at something, I wouldn't I wouldn't do it. But I'd I'd really have to build my I'd have to build something around something, and I think I. I think anybody who was going into any type of music would do that because you know when you you know when you're a bit younger you know you're full of it and you can you know you you come to it with all your influences in you know in place and you're you're completely sure that's the way to go and it, it, there's no yeah there's never any question and you have to sort of be cocksure about stuff you have to think you're better than everybody else and you know and I, I you know I was I was convinced about it whether I'm still convinced or not I don't know I mean I, I, but certainly it's been proven out we're, we're still here so you know this that might. I might have been justified in some way of thinking that, but it's just about sticking out. It is about. I mean, I mean, I know dance music's all about communal, being together, and I was never into that. I always hated that sort of side. I didn't want to be communal. I didn't want to sort of, you know, I didn't want to do that. I want to, you know, I, lo- I love experiencing things with strangers, <laughs> you know, whether it be cinema or a club. I, I like that. But the whole sense that was a, you know. Clubbing was like, a, you know, this is what I do. I do clubbing at the weekend. It almost seemed like a pastime. I said, "What are you doing on clubbing?" Oh no, I'm going to play golf or something. And it was just, yeah. Again, these things were at odds with how I viewed music, which is this mad- magical thing. So, yeah, I, I, th- I think it was. You have to create your own world, and then your own little gang, and that's the way. You know, that's the way it works. I mean, it, it worked that way for the Situationists. You know, why, why shouldn't it work for us? Me and my little gang, you know, ideas and and it is about being special, you know. Something a little different. We were you were talking about social media downstairs、uh, during your panel. You are conspicuous, conspicuously missing from social media.、Um, is that for any particular reason?、Um, well, it's not for any reason. I mean, I. I I think from the outset, as I said downstairs, I think my why I had any aversion to it really was because I just felt from its core it was so absolutely cheesy. And then people used to say to me, "Oh well, you know, you can keep in friend, you keep in touch with friends from school."、And、I said, "I don't fucking keep in touch with anyone from school." Well, I left them there when I left because you know I don't. So that was two things I just didn't want. You know, there was things like, "Okay, tell me something good about it." And、um, yeah, it, it was then being in touch with people, and I just, it just almost the magic of what rock, you know, being in the music, being a musician or make, being an artist, the magic had gone, and it was almost as if systematically people succumbed to it, and it was and it was no question that's what you have to do. And I thought, well, Jesus, this can't be true. This is, the, the, you know, don't you see what that? And then obviously the, t- you know, because. You know, people. It's very clever because people. Nothing, nothing people like more than talking about themselves or showing people. You know, and the thing is, why would you want to show your holiday snaps to like seven billion strangers? You know, it's bad enough showing it to your friends who don't like them. But you know, it's here. Of course, I understand it. I, you know, it may. It's. I, I get it. It's not that I don't understand. I completely get it. But, I, but, but I, you know, I think think it's difficult now to be subversive, truly subversive. I think you're monitored. I think there might be a reason between there. There might be a reason, between, you know, behind that. Subversive art might be sort of squashed because of that, mate. You never know. But 
people, you know, people used to, well, I was really worried, you know, you know, not going into this, I've got no authority on social media, but people were always really concerned about years ago, oh, big brother, you know, I don't want people watching me and stuff. But then, like, you know, people are giving it away for free now. And it's just like, well, when did that change? And it's, um, but it changes the way it is, the way we are. I mean, I'm, whatever who cares, you know. But I've got Instagram. That's good. So it's, that's easy. That's pictures. I like pictures. <laughs> it's very simple. Do you worry about not reaching a wider audience without social media? Is that something you're interested in doing? You know, I, th I think I've, I think I really, I always, I'm very, I always realize my own shortcomings. I think I reach the, I think I'm, I'm very happy with the audience, audience I've reached. In fact, I feel quite humbled by the people extra that I might have reached. Uh, I don't think, what would I gain from reaching anything more? Would it make me do anything differently? I don't think so. You know, I, I mean, it's so, it's, it's weird really, it's, it's like forcing people, oh you're here, you listen to this, and they, they don't, you know, I don't know. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't think, I know, it doesn't concern me. No, 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 <laughs> the short answer, it doesn't, that, that's never concerned me. You know, maybe I've lost out, you know. Uh, tell us about your next track. Okay, well, yeah, I was looking at this sort of list and stuff, and I thought, okay, well, maybe, because I always, I always used to say to people, well, I don't really like dancing, I don't like dancing, you know, because I, I used to say it to be playful just to annoy people, because obviously dance music, I, I'm not into that nonsense. But actually, that's, I, when I used to think about it, my friend actually reminded me, well, that's actually strictly not true, because when I really became, came of age, really to go out to nightclubs properly, you know, definitely in the mid-'80s, um, you know, electronic music has, as it was, the, the early boom of the techno-pop, as we all you know, without a better term, that had pretty much finished. 1984 was quite barren, things, things had changed, electronic music was really on the decline. So the things I really turned to, things I liked, even, you know, I, I was, well, my interest in electronic music at that stage had waned, I was into other things anyway. But what I did like, I really loved High Energy for some reason, because it was, especially Bobby, Bobby Orlando, and I loved uh, lots of, the, you know, especially Divine, and a lot of these records, and they were just so amazing because it was it, it was electronic, but it was you know it, it was it was great dance music, and um, yeah, the, the track I chose, even though it's not it's not high energy high energy track at all, it's a very obscure not obscure, it's a very absurd Sylvester track who's known obviously widely known for Rock the Box and being like this amazing personality disco personality of you know, legendary status. But he did this record, I think around, I got this, yeah, around probably 1985. And it was, I just listened to it and I just thought I could, it became another record that was pivotal in my shift from the way that I viewed music. And it was, uh, it was such an amazing record. And it's a record, that, one of these records that I'd always have if I had an, um, if you're listening to it, you wouldn't shuffle it or whatever, you know, and I just, it's, it's an amazing, some great lyrics in there. I mean. The, the, the first, the, the, the first verse, when it, um, verse where it goes on from Brooklyn to the Bronx, that's so amazing. But then the second verse, he has to do the flip to England. Then it goes from Liverpool to Wales, and it just hasn't got the charm. But in that way, it's got this some bizarre charm to this record. But it's a great electro record, without being an electro record. It's a great high energy dance record without being any of those things. But um, and it's very theatrical, and it's it's very obviously. Yeah, it was my it was my inclusion into especially going to a lot of Heinegger was played exclusively then at alternative or gay clubs, and that was a rite of passage for me in a way because I, I went to these things 
and not being gay myself, but really experienced a brand new world that was quite difficult back then. It wasn't obviously not as realized as it is now. It's not as free as it is now. It was very behind, very, very much secretive to a degree. You know, you had to, people were on their guard there, but it was a really amazing space to be and listen to music. And, you know, you could be on, you could be on the dance floor in Birmingham, but you could feel that you're, you're in New York. And that was amazing, you know, and that's, that, and that's when I think, well, you know what? I, yeah, dance, I do like dancing. I did like dancing. I do like dancing. And that's, if I ever sort of have to catch myself, I just, so, you know, I'd bring myself back to that. And there's, a, there's the track, Sylvester, Rock the Box.
Mistakes are something you're quite comfortable with. Um, is perfection worth striving for? It's overrated. It's like, it's like originality. It's overrated. I mean, I think I just, as I just mentioned back then, uh, in, in, the, in the talk earlier, uh, it was about, originally you used to do things very instinctively. You used to have one take, put it to tape, that was it. I mean, it used to, go, it used to come out mistakes and all. Now we're in the age of editing. Everything's edited. Our personalities are edited. We edit them ourselves, gladly. Our music's edited. And that's what people are striving for. And that's why maybe there may be a route. There, things might get a bit dull, possibly. Um, of course, you don't want things to sound awful. You want things to sound as be to the best they the best they can be. I mean, I, I certainly wouldn't want to try to sort of dig up techniques that were used in the '90s for making records because you know it just wouldn't work, really. You know, it's, you know, there's, I'm not not at all saying oh, technology's progression's bad. Of course, it's not. But it's just uh, we are heavily edited now. So in answer to your question, yeah, perf perfection. I don't know. Overrated. Rubbish. What does the future hold for Carl O'Connor? Um, well, if you've asked, yeah, I don't, you know, hopefully, well, no, d d not hopefully. Well, hopefully, yeah, I mean, you know, still going to be making music and enjoying it. You know, I've been very fortunate and, you know, I'm constantly glad from that because I, I, I really do remember the other side and I can, you know, I do remember what could have been and I'm constantly grateful for that and I think it's just a it's to make things interesting if I can make if I can do something that impacts or, or, or you know that, that, that's it just make great art that's all you can ever do if you're an artist or you know it's this thing I always I say you know you want your dinner date with eternity you know that's it make great art and just and just make the greatest thing possible even if you even if you're living in dreamland or slightly deluded that's just just carry on that way you know you know that's the future that's the future, that's the immediate future and that's probably the long term future you know just be i think be a lot be i think be a lot more positive as well um to people you know not be as um not that i haven't been but like just people in general if you people are really do want to know you know about stuff you know be, be very positive and just kind of give it i think positivity i think the older you get maybe that's one great thing that i've learned to really to try and do that and be you know, give that out to people and sort of give something back in that sort of sense. I mean, I've, you can't, I can't give them anything more than that, but I can, you know, positivity. I know that sounds very hippie and maybe a bit trite, but, you know, that's it. Positivity is always good. Uh, tell us about your final song. Well, I think all these songs are kind of bookended, really. I mean, the Gene Vincent one being the first one was really the start. And this, in, in some sort of way, this track... By the, by the band The Immortal Souls, led by the amazing Roland S. Howard, who formerly of the Birthday Party and Nick Cave fame, really signalled the end, really. It, it, it signalled the end of my real, my real interest of, as being a passionate fan of music. It, it, was, it, was, it was the beginning of my journey to becoming an artist as a recording artist, and things were never really the same. I always remember seeing them. They supported Sonic Youth, and... At that particular moment, they just seemed so out of place and they seemed from another time. And it was almost like, oh, wow. it was the end of the 90s, around 89. And I thought, okay, things are changing. Things are absolutely changing. The, the, the something new happening. And, you know, I don't necessarily get it. You know, and I felt that was kind of crazy to think that because I was 19 then. 
and I always sort of felt, well, okay, this is the times happened, and it's all, and um, yeah, they, they kind of that was a real moment when I saw them, and I thought, okay, this is it's over, you know, that everything, it's all in place now. You either go for it and try and make your own mark, because you can't rely on people now forever. The people who you loved. Their times passed, possibly. I mean, it has. I mean, it, it had and it hadn't. I mean, uh, this uh, these Immortal Souls, this record in particular, I think it was dogged by lots of problems, and it came out much later, and the band had gone through, you know, it was loads of problems anyway. But th this track in particular, why it's very special to me, because bringing it back into the dance world, we played. They're obviously Australian. They're from Melbourne, and. Uh, I don't often do this, but I know a lot of people do this. You know, they'll go to Manchester and they'll play Blue Monday and they'll think, oh, this is great. Or they'll go to New York and they'll play Planet Rock. And they'll yeah, I, obviously I, I never do, well, I never try to do those things. But uh, we were in Melbourne uh, with the Samuel District Projects, myself and Dave Sumner Function, and uh, we played a really extended set, really long, something that I certainly don't normally do. And it was about six or seven hours, amazing, in a venue that no longer exists. And I just thought at the end, you know what, I'm going to do some sort of bizarre homage to Melbourne in, in a very clumsy way. And I had this track and I played it. And for some reason, it it slowed down in time. It didn't play it at the correct speed. It, I, this, for some inexplicable reason, I don't know why to this stage. And it was, And all of a sudden, the tension within the room it was so amazing. It really slowed down. I mean, it's a real low-slung, great guitar track anyway. But then slowed down. It took on this mystical sort of quality that everybody in that room at that particular moment, I thought, oh, okay, I think I get the... I, at last, I get the power of playing music to people to really that can really change a whole mood. And it was fantastic. And I was really, I was really happy because a, a good friend of Roland's girlfriend at the time of his death because I think he just died I think I played it I think I played it just after he died actually I think it's some sort of homage to him and I, I think anyway someone told it, you know, a friend of his girl, current girlfriend which came up to me and said that was great thank you so much for doing it and that really was that was an amazing thing and uh, so yeah it was important this definitely I can trans the, the end of the real book end of my my youth really and it finished with them really and seeing them and I thought okay my youth and it sounds bizarre, but it, it, you know it's time to really sort of step up to the plate now, and uh, let's do it. You know, if you're not going to do it now, that's it. You know, put your money where your mouth is and uh, make art. Nice one. Thank you for talking to us, Carl. My pleasure. Thank you.
Yeah.